Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is a new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, and nor, will there, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. If you were waiting to be encouraged by the opening reading this morning, you're going to have to keep looking. Uh, in verse 1, let's just get right into it. I'm going to move this out of my way, if that's okay. Excuse me for one second. That's much better. Okay, so these are the words of the preacher. Let's start right in verse 1 and just expositionally go through this to set the context. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, verse 1, is the words most likely of Solomon. He was the son of David, the king of Israel, the king of Judah. And he begins in with an exclamation, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, it's all vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? These first 11 verses comprise a poem that opens his book. It's both an exclamation, all is vanity, and a question, what does a man gain by all his toil? What's it all for? Well, first we have to know what the Hebrew word for vanity implies, and that's just more than one English idea. It's not just one Hebrew word that translates into vanity. We need to first look at three things, frustration, perplexing, or, or being perplexed, and this idea of something, this idea of impermanence, it's a breath, it's a vapor, it's a fleeting thing. So frustrating, the man who toils is going to find that at the end of his sweating, says Solomon, all of his soreness, in the end, his reward is nothing. This is frustrating to say the least, and depending upon the kind of toil that you're engaged in, maybe infuriating. What about perplexing? Vanity is perplexing. Well, there are matters and circumstances in this life which despite our best efforts and contemplation, we will never understand. The death of a young person, seemingly for no reason. Our absolute best efforts being met with disappointment. How about happiness sometimes finding, its, finding itself on the opposite side of despair? It's perplexing. In a breath, vapor, fleeting, the idea of impermanence. It's like youth, it's here and then it's gone. Rendering us to think that some things might not only be a little meaningless, but even that they are utterly meaningless in the end. Now, this sounds harsh, right? To make a blanket statement that all people everywhere will find the experience of this life and find disdain for the world in it. I mean, after all, there are different people from different backgrounds, families, socioeconomic backgrounds. Everybody sees things a little different, Solomon. How about a little situational understanding? It's an important observation. We should talk about it for a second. Some have disdain for the world because they have less, maybe beggars. Their experience is rough because they have less or nothing. Some feel ostracized, some on the fringes of society, and they have disdain for the world and animosity because of that. 
Some choose to live as hermits or recluses. They don't know the world. Maybe they don't want to know the world. But the author of Ecclesiastes didn't suffer from any of these things. So why would he say it? Solomon didn't only have, but he had an abundance. He enjoyed the comfort of extravagant wealth and high social status as king. And still in wisdom, he could not find a hiding place potent enough to conceal him or protect him from the fundamental truth of what it means to be a human. So he goes on to outline this matter from two perspectives. One, he's human. It's linear. It moves forward in progression. The other one's nature. It's cyclical. It goes from beginning to end and then back to the beginning and then back to the end, so on and so forth, sort of this in ordained cycle of motion. But Solomon also wrote Proverbs 14. You don't turn there. It's a quick one. Verse 23, the same author that said there's no reward in toil says in Proverbs 14, 23, in all toil there is profit. Is that a contradiction? Well, in this proverb, Solomon's saying that there's profit, but it's a matter of context. There he's talking about profit as a means to supply what we need biologically to live, right? We uh, feeding our need for food and shelter and protection by the work of our hands. But what about a toiling what about a toiling that can profit the life of the soul after this life is over? It's what Shakespeare phrased as shuffling off this mortal coil. Then what? What will your toiling get you then? This is what Solomon is addressing at the beginning of Ecclesiastes. Our work here has no eternal benefit. So how can we find real meaning in it? We'll come back to Shakespeare in a minute. Begins the question, the lasting importance of humanity. Is there any true meaning to be found in being human? And he's going to base his argument on the abbreviated nature of human life, basically against the inherent characteristic of the way that nature works cyclically and will continue on keeping on well after the preacher is gone. So he goes on to talk about the sun rising and going down and rising again and the wind blowing around and around on its circuits, so on and so forth. But how do we as humans tend to cope in the face of this? In the face of knowing that our lives and all that we know and all who we know and all we'll ever know will be gone. And that the world will keep on spinning like we were never here in the first place. All things are full of weariness, he says. A man cannot even utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. He says, I know how I deal with it. I know how you all deal with it. We grow weary. If we're brave enough to sit and to contemplate it, to sit right in the middle of it and feel the force of the waves beating against the levees that we've built up trying to contain it somewhere in the back of our minds, we soothe ourselves. We engage the world around us through our senses. We see things or people and hear things and we want them. We want to consume them and indulge ourselves in a world trying to find satisfaction through our senses in order to take away the burden of the truth about our fleeting existence. But no matter what we see and conquer, what happens with the eye? It always sees more. It always wants more. The mind is restless. It's constantly at work looking for satisfaction, searching for satisfaction. As though the accumulation of stuff or some sort of renewed earthly worldview could permanently soothe that part of the saking reality. So he finishes saying, what has been is will be and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. And there is, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. He's saying nothing is new. Stop. Before you come at me with all the things that you think are new, right? Technology or medicine or airplanes or if my son was here, your favorite TikTok dance. Like, whatever, right? Let me stop you right here and say, you're right. 
You're right, those things are all new. I surrender to you with regard to all that that's right in front of you. The trees, if you will. But Solomon isn't talking about counting young trees. He's trying to show you the forest. He's trying to show you the 10,000-foot macro realities and patterns that haven't changed since the beginning of man. The operations of nature have been the same. Matters of logic have been the same. Human tendencies, our incomplete scientific understanding of the way that the cosmos and eternity work. Same. How about the corruption of what's good and the inherent evil nature in men's hearts? Is that the same? The world would say, no, not true, right? Most people are actually good. It's the intolerant folks won't surrender their antiquated stories about who they say God was. No, they're the evil ones that use their faith to hate and discriminate and judge. It's a partially true statement. We cling to our faith. The difference is that we know who we are in the larger story of who the unchanging God was and is. We know who we are. And because of it, we do not only not surrender our faith or our Bibles, but we cling to them with all of our worldly might. There's no remembrance, he finishes. No remembrance of former things, nor will there ever be of later things. Just build me up one positive word at a time, Solomon. What about famous people in history? Aren't they remembered? He's wrong. People in history remembered folks that really move the needle. Conquering kings, like Solomon. Hypocrite, right? He's remembered. Cleopatra, Sir Isaac Newton. Remembered. Sure, they'll live on forever, maybe. There's some names that will hang on and be celebrated for their accomplishments over time. But let me ask you a question. How many more people did great deeds, accomplished great things that were never memorialized in writing or oral tradition and that fade away? How many mighty men and women were reduced to being equal to lesser men and women in the way they were both not remembered? No one is remembered by their own accord. So when Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun, he's not talking about this life in a vacuum. He's talking about this life confined to a world after the fall. After sin entered the world and set history on a trajectory that was, in fact, new. Under the sun is a sinful world full of dead men's bones that is perplexing and frustrating and fleeting. It's where vanity is experienced, and it's where all of you live, just like me. So in the end... Because of all of the above, there's one question that you should be asking right now. It must be asked. You've all asked it at least once, maybe even this week. You may be sitting here thinking about it right now. We're working through this contemplation about the truth of nature and this perplexing, fleeting life. What is the point of any of it? Why? It pushes us and pulls us and allows us to find joy temporarily to only in the end take it all away forever. Can we find any lasting meaning in any of it? All right, time for a riddle. Ready for a riddle? Cool, let's pick it up. Never ahead, ever behind, yet flying swiftly past. For a child, I last forever. And for an adult, for an adult I'm gone too fast. I'll say it again. Never ahead, ever behind, yet flying swiftly past. For a child, I last forever. For an adult, I'm gone too fast. What am I? Time, right? Well, well done, well done. What is time? Did you ever sit down and actually think about it? What is time? Nobody? Just me? Kind of a nerd like that, aware that I guess. Is it a constant? Is time like two plus two? Is time like gravity? 
It has a modern unit of measurement called the second. And that unit of measurement is implemented all over the, all over the globe. It's an international modern unit of measurement. So why do I say that? I say that to emphasize that sometimes here in the Western world, we see everything through a filter that's very egocentric because of our wealth and our comfort, right? We kind of think we live in this microcosm, we get lost in it, that there's one shepherd and one sheep only. Sort of this well-fed sheep, this clothed and very well-cared-for sheep, all the while hiding in plain sight are the other 99. Some of them are cold and hungry. Excuse me. Maybe with their ribs showing from hunger. Don't have medicine. Don't have technology. A lot of sheep don't have working bathrooms all over the world. I don't want you to see the trees. We have to see the whole picture. And though time may feel different to the rich sheep and the poor sheep, I assure you it ticks the same equally for both. And here's why. We're going to start going fast now, so hold on. Okay. Time itself is not something that we can experience with our senses. We don't see time, taste time, touch time, but we can recognize it and we can definitely measure it. That's because time is actually a continued sequence of events moving from the past through the present into the future. We live in the natural world and so our time only has one direction called the arrow of time and that arrow is always pointing forward. Now it's Sunday and most of us haven't done any hard thinking this morning, probably, so I'm apologize in advance because I'm going to ask you to think now. I'm going to ask your brain to exercise for a hot minute and it's my prayer that in the end you will not only be thankful but that you'll see scripture more clearly. We also need to consider that time is sometimes referred to as the fourth dimension of reality. Oh, come on, Jason. It is, but it's not going to be complicated. I'm going to make it easy to understand. We only need two pieces of information. One, everything in physical space has a length and a width and a height. Everything. Three-dimensional physical space. Length, width, height. But that's not enough in order to most accurately describe what you're seeing as an observer, right? We're missing something, the fourth dimension of time, and you all live in it, and you all know that you live in it. Maybe you just never took the time to think about it. Let me show it to you. Everybody knows that the worst-kept secret in this church is that Stephen A. loves coffee. Everybody knows it. Right? So I'm going to go to Pastor Steve after service and say, Pastor, why don't we meet this week at the corner of Route 51 and Glenburn Drive? I'm giving him a length and a width, or in terms of coordinates, an X and a Y. Right? And assuming we're going to meet somewhere on the surface of the earth, that's the height. Right? Fifth and Forbes downtown, maybe on the 20th floor or the basement, that would also be the height. But as far as me wanting to make the man to my left happy, we're going to meet at Route 51 and Glenburn Drive, somewhere on the surface of the earth. But that's not enough for him to know what we're going to do, right? He will respond to me and say, man, I know what that is. That's the address of the Dunkin' Donuts a few minutes from here. I'm in. What time do you want to meet? You have to understand space, and you cannot understand it divorced from the concept of time. The second thing is everything, including you, is constantly moving. No, I'm not. I'm sitting here listening to a boring lecture about science. Oh, yeah, you are. But yes, you are moving. Assuming that you're on planet Earth with me, right? We're all rocketing around through space around a star we call the sun. It's speedy, 67,000 miles per hour. Kind of makes you wish you had seatbelts on those chairs a little bit. Time is a measurement of events based on the observers of those events. Let's say Steve and I are walking to that Duncan. Smell it already, right? Almost there, we see the traffic light is red, so we step off the sidewalk. We march safely across Route 51. We step safely onto the other sidewalk. 
Yahtzee. Then the light changes from red to green and a massive delivery truck drives right down the street through the exact same spot in space where we were. Why didn't we get hit? Well, it would be true to say that maybe the truck drove through that space 20 modern international seconds later. But more accurately, invoking the arrow of time, it drove through that space as one event in a series of events that occurred after the event of us walking across the street. If I said picture time, we may think of a clock with the second and minute and hour hands rotating around. And listen, to the younger Apple Watch community, I get it. I basically just described a sundial to you people. But that's how we used to do it back in the olden days, right? But the primary purpose of a clock is to display time as we experience it, to display the passing of scientifically defined seconds as they go by. But a clock is not time itself. So to you or I as observers, people living in the natural world, right? Time itself, we said it, is the sequence of events occurring in relationship to one another. So the picture of time is not a round clock with mechanical parts. Think of it more like a line with one single event followed by another single event and all of the events that occur in the natural world just in chronological order. We experience and recognize time and measure time by observing those events as they occur in relation to the other ones. Consequently, don't miss this, you cannot have time without having the events because time is just the word that we use to observe and measure the events themselves as they unfold along the line. We can see that time isn't only a when, but it's also a where. That's cool, right? All right, maybe it's not. But more importantly, what in the world does this have to do with who God is or Holy Scripture? And have mercy, when are we getting to the part about Christmas? Right? Those are good questions. Let's start answering them right this minute, right now. Do you know the story of Hansel and Gretel? By hands, who remembers the story of Hansel and Gretel? Close enough. Right? Two little children, due to a famine, get led off in the woods repeatedly by their father, the woodcutter, and his wife. They're going to abandon them there. They're little kids. They're smart little kids. Right? And as they're being led away in the woods, they begin leaving a trail of breadcrumbs as they're going, which should lead them back to their home again. But the birds eat the breadcrumbs. Now they're lost in the woods without a way home. Then after days of wandering alone, they follow a white bird into the clearing and come upon a house made of gingerbread, candies, and cookies. House made of cookies. Then the adversary arrives. The adversary? Yes. But she's disguised as someone who can care for them and tempts them with the comfort of soft beds and full bellies. But she's really a bloodthirsty witch, and she lures children in by tempting their natural desires, knowing they will indulge themselves, so that once she captures them, she can devour them. Y'all know there's a sermon in there somewhere. But today, let's just talk about breadcrumbs. Hansel and Gretel want to establish a trail that's unmistakable that will lead them in a specific direction back home. This idea is a godly one. Of course it is. Let me explain it to you. God could have created the world and everything in it, which he did. And when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, he could have thrown them out and locked the door behind him, which he did. But then he could have just left them in their posterity to try to find their way home alone, which he did not. Instead, he enacted a plan to save them and return them home safely. And he also leaves a trail, not only not out of bread, but back to bread. Instead of crumbs, God is going to mark his trail with the events of time and space. So that when his children look back, they'll see that he was in control from the beginning. And they'll be able to recognize his plan for him, from him, for them to come home. Well, when did those events begin? 
well, begin in the beginning, of course. But when does the beginning begin? Well, when did time begin? If time is a sequence of events, then time begins when the events begin. And if the events occur in the natural world, then time begins when the events begin, when the natural world begins. You with me so far? Good, because we're going to start going faster. Open your Bibles to the first page, very first page. You know this from memory. Genesis 1. We only have time this morning to look at a very few of the earliest events, thousands of years before the first Christmas morning. But nonetheless, the story of Christmas begins the moment of time, the moment that time begins. And I assure you, there is a lifetime of crumb gathering to be realized. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This sounds like an event. It is an event. It's the first event. And in ten words, it tells us plainly what scientists and philosophers have been trying to unpack for thousands of years. The first thing that it tells us was that, in fact, there was a beginning. And when it happened, God was already there. And that beginning starts when God creates His creation event is the first event, but see that in creating, he's also placing the very first event at the beginning of the timeline of all future events. So in creating the universe, God is also simultaneously creating time. He's creating time. But what about the time before creation? Doesn't that notion of before sort of mean that time was always a thing? Well, no. Time to human beings is a sequence of events from past through the present to the future. There's no sequence of events, there's no time. And if the creation event was the first event, then by definition there can be no time before it. So when we say that God exists outside of time and space, we're saying that God existed before the first event happened, before time and space were ever created. In Christian theology, we hold to this idea called the simplicity of God. We say that God is simple. But when we say that God is simple, we're not saying that God is not complex. And we're not saying that God is somehow dim-witted in some way. All we're saying is that he is not made up of the attributes that we use to describe him. He is those attributes, right? He's not an abstract idea who happens to have love and have wisdom and have holiness. As if we first conceived of God and then just said and attributed all of these things to him. God in his very essence within himself and by himself is love. God is is wisdom. God is holy. And those attributes come from him to us, not the other way around. He's not bound by time and space because he created time and space, not the other way around. Spoiler alert, he's not bound by human will either for the same reason. Well, some would say, well, creation wasn't the first event or that it was even the first stuff ever created. I mean, the earth had to be made of something, right? can't build a house without having a stack of lumber and some concrete to pull from. Well, according to the way that we see things in the physical world, yeah, I'll buy that. It sounds right to me. But God clearly says through his word, nope. It's through his sheer will and his word alone that created the universe. You may have hear, heard the word uh, or the term ex nihilo. It's a Latin term. It just means out of nothing, right? It's the classical Christian doctrine that says God spoke the universe into being out of nothing. Right? All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John 1, 3. The preacher from Hebrews 11. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So in the very first verse, see that right out of the gate, God is giving us the who, what, the where, and the when. 
Who? Him. What? Creation of the universe and the beginning of the timeline of history. The what and the, or the where and the when may be the same thing. But why? Why did God create space and time and this unraveling of events full of people and dolphins and coffee beans and this building? Regarding exactly why God was moved to institute the covenant of redemption, we have very little insight into eternity past, but we can know some of the details based on the event crumbs that he left for us. So quick review, covenant of redemption, inner Trinitarian fact, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father wants to give a people to his Son, and out of his own love he wants to save them from their sin. Easy enough to follow. God the Son Sin will require some kind of substitutionary payment because no human can endure divine wrath for his or her own sin, let alone divine wrath for all people's sins across time. There needs to be a divine substitute, unblemished by sin himself. And we'll see in a moment that he couldn't be from the bloodline of the first Adam, whose nature was already marred by sin from the fall. So what happens? The father prepares a sinless human body for him and accomplishes this by he himself being the father of the child. Much like when God creates the first Adam from the matter of the ground, right, with his word, in the same way he finds favor in a young virgin who had not yet found union with the sinful man and creates Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the man, the second Adam, from the matter of her body, in the same manner. Jesus was God the Son who took on human flesh, tabernacled among men. And he was under the law like us, created in the same way to be under the law just like us until Jesus' death, who were under the old law of the old covenant. So our redemption proceeds out of love of the Father, but it's achieved by Christ as a sinless human substitutionary sacrifice, dying on the cross. God the Spirit calls us and joins us to Christ. How is that possible? It's one of the great mysteries of our Christian faith. We're here in West Mifflin. How can we be joined to Christ, glorified in eternity? We are. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee and surety of the new covenant. So we see our salvation as an inter-Trinitarian work. It's also why our salvation is a covenant concept. So now we know the plan. We know that the plan was a covenant within the Trinity. And in conjunction with this, as we proceed, let's continually go back and refresh to ourselves the idea about time. Not hands on a clock, but a construct that's made up of unfolding events pointing to the future. Is everybody still with me? All right, amen. God creates for six days light, water, earth, sky, heaven, luminaries, land, vegetation. Remember the covenant of redemption. The Father wants to give a son to his people. So on the sixth day, he finishes creation with the only member of the created order that he made in his own image. Us, human beings, a gift from father to son. The gift of giving, the first gift, not stocking stuffers, a people. The beginning of time is off and running, and we arrive at God's first covenant with men. Well, at least one man, Adam. Looking at the fall as an act in the stage production of time, here we're going to see the irrelevance of Shakespeare's observation. Okay, Genesis 3.15, Pastor Steve read it earlier. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Let's look at what's happening here, right? In this production, there's a new character now. Not just God and Adam and Eve anymore. The serpent is now introduced, makes his entrance. The adversary of God, the adversary of man, Adam and Eve, but now their roles have changed. 
They once abided in God's favor, but now they're playing a different part. They're at war with God because they didn't uphold their end of the covenant. God himself, yeah, he's in this scene too. But he's the director and the playwright, the creator of all things, including the actors. He's in every scene. But from Adam and Eve's perspective, he's also playing a new part because they once saw him as proud father, and now they see him as judge and jury. But we have one more new character, one more. One not yet revealed, but only alluded to. It's a sort of shadowy figure whose only attribute we know of right now is that he will be a savior of the woman's offspring from the clutches of the serpent. So Adam and Eve have created a, a, a grave error that will cost people, all of us, our physical lives. And God is furious at sin. But instead of killing them and starting over, remember the covenant of redemption. God the Father cannot give a people to the Son that do not exist anymore. So this chain of events, he shows you a couple more attributes of his own. Trustworthiness in keeping the covenant that he made to his Son. But also patience. Paul says in Romans 5, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The minute sin shows up on the scene, God shows up too with a plan to forgive. Not forget, he is just and holy and cannot abide sin or sinful people. But for the love of his son and for those who would become his son's possession, he's ready to forgive. And he will decree the events of time and space to unfold toward revealing and manifesting that forgiveness. So instead of ending the entire production, he starts two communities. The seed of the woman of promise, the seed of the serpent. They'll be at odds with one another constantly. And it's vitally important to see here that it's her progeny. Right Down the line, a man will suffer greatly. He'll be bruised on his heel. But he will eventually be a conqueror of the serpent in the serpent's line forever because his blow will strike the head of the serpent. Now, with regard to God's holiness and man's sinfulness and God's sovereignty over their salvation, the whole production, Solomon's decree of what's happening under the sun is nothing new. It just began. So time passes. Events, events, events. Cain and Abel, Seth, some more events. Some guy named Methuselah. There's a Lamech in there. You get it. And a thousand years go by, and here comes Noah. And what Noah doesn't know, well, sorry, it's terrible, is that uh, by the time he comes on the scene, God's restraint toward man's sin is just about to break. Can't deal with it anymore, because Noah lives during a time where the sinful nature of men and women has become so pervasive, he is going to break. Nothing is new under the sun. In fact, it's so bad that in Genesis 6, uh, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of, of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So what's he going to do? He's going to flood the earth. A global, catastrophic flood that will kill everything on land. Men, women, children, everyone, everything. Except Noah and his family. The Bible says Noah was a righteous man and walked with God and found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He was given the free gift of salvation. Listen to this. Noah and his family were about to be saved from the wrath of God by God himself because he couldn't save himself through anything, not through his works, not through his own merit, not through anything. 
Why is that a big deal? Because Noah's free gift of salvation is the next major event in this stage production of God's salvific plan over time. We're working from the beginning of time toward the end of time. God says during creation, during the creation event, let there be an expanse in the middle of the waters, right? And let it separate the waters from the waters. You with me? He separated water from water, and then he creates life in the space in between. But here in the flood, he's going to do the opposite. He's going to take the water above and crash it into the water below, and in doing so, destroy an entire wicked generation, only to let the water recede and allow life to begin again in the space above it. He's going to keep his promise that there would be a savior downstream and the offspring of the woman. This is the first time beginning with Noah. Listen to this. The first time beginning with Noah that God sovereignly elects a new people out of an old people. And he's going to carry forward his great plan of redemption through Noah and his family. And when it's over, he makes a covenant with Noah. And he gives him the sign of the covenant. I make between me and you and every living creature that's with you for all future generations. It's all-encompassing. It's everlasting. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And what's the sign of the covenant? The rainbow. God sees it and remembers his covenant with every living creature of flesh that's on the earth. Do we still see rainbows now? Yes. God's promise, along with the events in the timeline of redemption, roll on. We're almost there. Joseph, Jacob's son, who was born a shepherd and exalted, as a, exalted to this point of being a prince in order to save a people. Moses was a prince, and he was made a shepherd in order to lead people out of bondage. Do you see Christ in there? Through the life of Moses, God is going to drop even more breadcrumbs, huge breadcrumbs, that all point the way to Christmas morning. In Egypt, God institutes the Passover. Stole out the nine plagues in the kingdom of Egypt. It's bad. The tenth, the death of all the firstborn creatures, the worst of all of them, is about to occur. He instructs Moses to have the Israelite people take an unblemished male lamb and kill it and then spread the blood on their lintel and the doorposts. Not their own blood, somebody else's blood, the blood of the unblemished lamb. So that when the spirit of judgment comes, it goes to this house and it kills. And it goes to this house and it kills. And then it gets to this house and sees the substitutionary blood on the lintel in the doorpost, and it passes over the house, saving everybody inside from judgment. God gives Moses three other things, the law, the priesthood, and the entire sacrificial system. He gives the law to indict men. Can't break the laws that don't exist, but now they do formally, and men are guilty on paper, stoned. Jesus was placed under the law, like us, but he was sinless in its sight and thereby qualifying him to be the unblemished Passover lamb. And he gives them the priesthood. God gives Moses the priesthood so that they can have representation of them as a sinful people before a holy God. Without a priesthood, you can't have a high priest. Right? Hebrews says and tells us that the risen Christ is our high priest right now. He's our mediator. He makes constant intercession between us and God. Ongoing. He also instituted the sacrificial system to atone for their unintentional sins of his chosen people, Israel. Okay. The blood of millions of animals over and over and over. 
There had to be a blood sacrifice, said the Lord, to atone for sin. And this would go on for over a thousand years. So no matter what other events that God was revealing over the course of time, no matter what was happening, there was one singular event the entire time reminding man that he was in need of constant atonement for his sin in front of God. Always. It's another wildly unmistakable breadcrumb. It's literally repeated over and over along the arrow of time, pointing to the cross. There's so many breadcrumbs. Some are giant neon billboards. Some are more subtle. Abraham being asked to sacrifice his only son of promise. right? Only to have God at the last moment provide for him a sacrifice with the ram caught in the thicket. Moses lifting up the bronze serpent in the wilderness. I love that one. Bronze serpent in the wilderness. That all who would just look upon it would be saved from the fiery serpents that were killing them. We still, this, we still see this symbology today. Right? It's the serpentine symbol of healing. It's on ambulances the world over. It's literally in the middle of the flag of the World Health Organization. Right? The prophet Isaiah tells us, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel is the Hebrew name for God with us. He's saying that the child who will be born will literally be God with us. And finally, the prophet Micah tells us, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, yeah, that Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is a ruler, to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, of ancient days. And so from the beginning, from creation, God's plan to unfold these events across time began. And they continued faithfully as all events do, from the past and through the present where we are and toward the future. He's doing it to, to, to show you that his intent to fulfill the promise that he made, ago is, that he made uh, uh, years and years ago is true. The promise that he made an eternity ago. And history unfolded and thousands of years later, after the garden, we find shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. In the great words of the philosopher Linus, goodwill toward men. Right? That little word host, by the way, look that up again. It's the Greek word stratia. It means army. It's this idea of an encamped army or a troop of soldiers. And so the angel says to them, Fear not. Right? I bring to you a gospel of great joy, and they're afraid because there's a multitude of heavenly angels. It's the heavenly army of God's angels announcing a royal birth. Of course they're freaked out. We'd all be freaked out too. But it inaugurates the final stages of a new covenant that saved us all. So back to the beginning. Solomon struggled as we have. He's looking for meaning. He has it all. 
He has money. He knows there's no meaning in it. He has time and social status to do whatever he wants, and he knows there's no meaning in it. How can there possibly be any lasting meaning in this life where there are hungry children and heartache and suffering? I'll give it to you. I'll give you the meaning of life. Seek out God. Find that he is. Seek out God. Find who he is. To know that he wants to have a relationship with you as adopted children. You don't believe me? Sounds corny. Know that he deliberately orchestrated events creating a timeline all for the purpose of revealing himself and his plan for his son and his son's people. Argue that. Plans that from this side of time looking backward are so obvious, so unmistakable, so undeniable because of their repetition and coherence demonstrating his unchanging character and intent to fulfill his covenant of redemption. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, is the promised Emmanuel. God, the Son of Eternity, become flesh. He's the offspring of the community of the first woman who would bruise the serpent's head, fulfilling God's promise of human redemption from all the way back in the earliest events of human history. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Two days from now, have mercy, two weeks from now, is December 25th. We celebrate Christmas. When you wake up that morning, whether you're alone or you're in a house full of beaming little eyes and soundtrack of little children, as you get out of bed and, you know, you're wiping your eyes and you're on your way to get coffee on the way to the magic of Christmas morning, right? Just remember. Just for a moment, the quiet of your heart, fall on your knees and just remember. See through the glitter and the tinsel and the presents and all the little trees in your vision. And just try to remember the forest. Remember to see the whole picture. Though we forgot about him, God did not forget about us. Right? He did not break his promise. He kept his promise. By all means, have your coffee. Make memories with your family all day. Rip paper apart, sharing the giving of gifts. But remember, thank Christ for dying for you while we were still sinners. Give him honor as the Lord and Savior who, when you are lying there in your beds, Lord willing, many, many, many Christmases from now, you will have the comfort of knowing that he's there, waiting, waiting to bring you home. Let's pray. Father, you have been there always. And though we are a blink of an eye, we are fleeting. And our lives are, at times, painfully perplexing. 
frustrated, when our expectations are not met, when we live in the vanity of our own hearts thinking that we are the center and not your son. The promise that you made was to him and to us indirectly through him. Let us never lose sight of this, not in the next two weeks, not on the morning that we celebrate the incarnation of your son, but for the rest of our lives until you call us home to glory. Please look down on us and see not our sin, but judge us by our righteousness that you give to us through Christ, the only Savior, Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you for your promise. Thank you that your yeses are absolutely yeses, for not forgetting about us, for not looking at us and flooding us away because we do not deserve anything but wrath, and yet you give grace. Even thousands of years later, your patience is overwhelming. Let us wake Christmas morning. Let us live and abide in your grace. Let us see the entire world through the filter of that gratitude until you call us home. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.